from deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I guess it depends on who's doing the torturing. The Supreme Court uh, recently, I think last week, rejected two appeals involving U.S. treatment of Guantanamo Bay detainees, thereby barring a Syrian man from suing the United States, the nerve, the nerve of the guy, over alleged torture and blocking the release of images. Images can't hurt you. Purported to show evidence of a Saudi man's mistreatment. The justices in both cases left intact lower court rulings in favor of the U.S. government. The court left in place a January 2014 ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals against the Syrian former detainee, a Mr. Al-Janko. He had sought to sue the United States for damages stemming from his treatment during seven years at Gitmo, saying he was tortured and suffered psychological and physical degradation there from 2002 to 2008. 2009, seven years. After being detained in Afghanistan in 2001, he was seeking damages. The appeals court said, based on what Congress had directed, courts don't have the authority to hear lawsuits like that one. Thank you, Congress. And the court handed a victory to the CIA by declining to take up a case in which a Washington-based civil liberties group was seeking access to videos and photographs of another detainee, Mr. Al-Khatani, leaving in place a decision by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruling the images are exempt from disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act because the images could harm U.S. national security by inciting anti-American sentiment. Al-Qahtani is known as the 20th hijacker. Well, that could incite American sentiment. Janko was released. Oh, Al-Qahtani is still being held at Guantanamo. Janko was released from there in October 2009 after a successful legal challenge to his detention. Prior to his detention by U.S. forces, Janko had been imprisoned and tortured by the then-Taliban-led Afghan government as a suspected U.S. spy. He's having a good life. Meanwhile, when other people do the torture, it goes differently. An immigration appeals panel has upheld the deportation of a former defense minister of El Salvador, who was in power in the 1980s, when the security forces there committed numerous human rights abuses, including the kidnapping and murders of four American churchwomen, that those security forces were supported by <laughs> you and me. The unprecedented ruling against retired General Carlos Eugenio Vides Casanova. Oh, it's Casanova again, is it? A one-time U.S. ally who retired to Florida long time ago is expected to open legal doors for the deportation of a second Salvadoran general and other foreign officials former foreign officials who condoned or failed to prevent but did not directly participate in human rights abuses in their countries. Two of the former officials were allowed to remain in the United States, but in 2009, immigration brought charges of immigration fraud against them for assisting in the torture of two detainees. The ruling is very significant, according to one of the lawyers for the Center for Justice and Accountability, because for the first time it connects the concept of command responsibility to the ability to remove human rights abusers from the United States. Command responsibility meaning even if they didn't exactly perform the torture, 
those in power were responsible. The appeals court described in detail the torture endured by one of the detainees working as a, in a church clinic in 1980 when he was attacked by soldiers and police. He was detained and kept in National Guard custody for three weeks. The decision said he was beaten, shot, given electric shocks, sexually assaulted, and hung from a ceiling. Why, that's in our playbook, isn't it? It described similar treatment of the other detainee. The appeals board stated these acts were not isolated or random abuses at the hands of rogue subordinates, but that Vides Casanova, who headed the National Guard and then defense minister, knowingly shielded subordinates from punishment and promoted a culture of tolerance for human rights abuses in the security forces. Just depends on who's got the command authority, doesn't it? I think Donald Rumsfeld is still safe. Hello, welcome to the show. Clara ficou até o sol raiar Dada também saracoteou Didi tomou o que era pra tomar Ainda bem que Isa me arrumou Um barco bom pra gente chegar lá Lele também foi e apreciou O baticum lá na beira do mar Aquela noite tinha do bom e do Tô lhe contando que é pra lhe dar água na boca Veio o mané da consolação Veio o barão de lá do Ceará Um professor falando alemão Um avião veio do Canadá Monsieur Dupont trouxe o dossiê E a Benetton me topou patrocinar A Sanio garantiu o som Do patipim lá na beira do mar Aquela noite Que tava lá na praia viu E quem não viu jamais verá Mas se você quiser saber, a Warner gravou e a Globo vai passar. Bia falou, aclaro o tempo, Clara ficou até o sol raiar. Dada também, Saracoteou, te tomou o que era pra tomar. Isso aqui é Pepe se chegou Ela é pintou, só que não quis ficar O campeão da Fórmula 1 No Batipum, lá na beira do mar Aquela noite E tinha do bom e do melhor Só tô lhe contando que é pra lhe dar água na boca Que é pra lhe dar água na boca Zeca pensou antes que era bom 
Mano cortou, brother, o que é que há? Foi a GE quem iluminou E a Macintosh entrou com o vatapá O JB fez a crítica E o Carreal deu ordem pra fechar O Carreal digo bate com da Benetton Não da beira do mar From Milan, Italy, recorded just hours before you're hearing it. Hello, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. If you want me to love you, all that you must do is just say so. Yes, indeed, the... The parade of initial sows continues. This week, first of all, a, a fairly fairly typical example of the genre. Salty mice are one thing, but what about humans, Emily? Right, so of course we're really interested in people, not in mice. Does the finding hold promise for future treatment options? Yes, so since high salt diets are dangerous, you obviously don't want to start eating uh, lots of salty stuff. What were the major findings here? So they found that the average flaccid penis is a little over three and a half inches long. All right, that's enough of that kind of talk. And then we have uh, a, a fairly novel, distinct, distinctive use of the initial so, not just at the beginning of the answer to a question, but in every sentence, uh, giving the impression that no matter what you m might be thinking ordinarily, you're in the throes of an, eluct an ineluctable, inarguable thread of logic. Here is former CIA chief Mike Morell. What's the context? Context is, is very important. And who's demanding? Yes, yeah, let me tell you exactly and how this played out, okay? So in 2001, I was President Bush's daily intelligence briefer. So George Tennant and I would go to the Oval Office every morning. So post 9-11, I was personally aware of the context and the feeling in the room. Um, and so the context is, number one, 3,000 people had just been killed. What was it? What did you know would be the question? You so knew it was multiple, like to be this attack in New York we've discussed or no, something more credible? No, so it was, again, it was again less specific. What, was it, what were the so, eight? So, waterboarding, so they kind of range sleep deprivation, from, whatever it is, have near uh, my pile, reverse fooding and all that stuff. So, so, um, so you know, kind of the, 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 the least was grabbing somebody by the lapels to get their attention if they're not paying attention, all the way to waterboarding. Right. So legal and effective and certainly thought to be effective at the time, right? Um, so the morality question is not easy. Now when you're saying so all the time, it's not. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's take another look at the grand experiment in which um, um, the current couple of generations are being exposed to a, an amazing, almost bewildering variety of 
chemicals never before experienced by the human body. Passing, passing on childhood toys to your offspring may seem touching and affecting, but new research has found you could actually be poisoning them, you see. This is from The Independent in London. A study found lead, cadmium, and even arsenic in an alarmingly high number of plastic toys made in the 1970s and 80s. One in four of these vintage toys contain more than 10 times current safety limits for lead. A third of non-vinyl toys violated standards for both lead and cadmium. Mm, Cadmium. And a fifth contained arsenic. That's our old friend. The highest concentrations of both cadmium and lead were found in yellow toy parts. Tom? Yellow toy parts? Yeah. Some of which had up to 70 times the current limit for lead. That's the current limit for lead. Mm-hmm. The findings, which have implications for toys donated to playgroups, come after British government safety inspectors revealed earlier this month 40% of electronic toys currently on sale had been found to breach rules on hazardous substances. These are new toys. The researchers used special equipment to detect heavy metals in more than 100 vinyl and non-vinyl toys, like old Barbie dolls. They're made of vinyl? Oh, my. Fisher-Price Little People figurines and My Little Pony dolls. My Little Lead-filled pony dolls, apparently. Writing in the Journal of Environmental Health, U.S. researchers from St. Ambrose University in Iowa said vintage plastic toys frequently contain toxic heavy metals, particularly lead or cadmium, at concentrations exceeding current U.S. and European limits. Old toys are still in frequent use and thus present an exposure that may be overlooked for children. The results illuminate a potential source of heavy metal exposure, and older toys are likely to have degraded over time, resulting in the release of small plastic particles as well as the toxic metals. Children particularly at risk from the sort of substances once widely used by the toy industry, the developing brains and bodies of infants and young children are especially vulnerable to toxic exposures because they absorb and retain lead more efficiently than adults, said the researchers. They are exposed to contaminated dust by playing close to the floor. They chew and occasionally swallow items, and they put their hands into their mouths after handling many toys. Researchers also looked at new toys, but found none contained cadmium, lead, or arsenic, compared with as many as 69% of the old one. And then a source at the Toy Retailers Association advised parents to check whether individual toys were suitable before passing them on. Yes, run your own cadmium, lead, and arsenic tests at home, won't you, Mom? And the World Health Organization's cancer agency has declared that one of the world's most widely used weed killers is probably carcinogenic to humans. That's their phrase. Probably carcinogenic. Amateur gardeners and professional farmers have been urged to think very carefully about using Roundup, which contains glyphosate. A summary of the report published in the Lancet Oncology said the herbicide had been detected in air during spraying, in water, and in food. It had also been detected in the blood and urine of agricultural workers, indicating absorption. Well, they're absorbed in their work. Amateur gardeners have been urged to hand weed rather than use glyphosate. Anyone who sprays it could get a whiff of it. People should be very careful with this stuff. Says Andreas Kortenkamp, professor of human toxicology at Brunel University, London. The IARC, that's the World Health Organization's Cancer Research Agency, asked 17 experts to assess five organophosphate pesticides 
glyphosate, the most widely used, was placed in Category 2A, meaning possibly carcinogenic to humans, following evidence from studies carried out in America, Canada, and Sweden. There's that Sweden again. The IARC's report said the use of glyphosate has increased sharply with the development of genetically modified glyphosate-resistant crop varieties. They're known here as Roundup Ready because Roundup is the brand name of glyphosate produced by Monsanto. In one study cited by the IARC, glyphosate induced a positive trend in the incidence of a rare tumor in male mice. In another study, there was a positive trend for hemoglossacoma in male mice. These findings contradict a study by a German government or the German government earlier this year, which concluded glyphosate was unlikely to pose a a carcinogenic risk to humans. Monsanto issued a statement saying it disagrees with the IARC. No, really? Dr. Philip Miller, vice president for Monsanto, said, we don't know how IARC could reach a conclusion that is such a dramatic departure from the conclusion reached by all regulatory agencies around the globe. Unquote. He said Monsanto has issued an urgent request for the World Health Organization to account for which scientific studies were used in their analysis and which were disregarded. Did you look at the studies that we funded? The grand experiment, ladies and gentlemen, we're all a part of it. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr., Well, first Dateline Rio de Janeiro developers brag the Athletes Village for the 2016 Rio Olympics will rival a five-star resort. The village will be turned into a private condominium complex after the Games, with some of the 3,600 luxury apartments selling for up to $700,000. The layout, called Pure Island, should pamper thousands of athletes in the western Rio suburb that's the centerpiece of the Games. It also reinforces complaints that South America's first games are being run by powerful construction and real estate interests, oblivious to the city's sprawling favelas, or slums, and stark inequality. This is a report from the Associated Press. The village has 31 17-floor towers with 10,000 bedrooms that will sleep 18,000 athletes and staff for the Olympics. Somebody's sleeping with somebody. All of the visitors here say this village is amazing, said the chief executive officer of Pure Island in an interview with the AP. We're doing our best to convince all 10,000 athletes to stay in this village and avoid staying in hotels. It's the anti-hotel movement. It's the largest development of its kind in Brazil. The construction cost is $700 million. Financing being handled by a state-run lender. The Swag Village contrasts with the conditions of thousands of poor who once lived just a short walk from the village. In in Rio's Villa Autodroma, a favela that has been 90% demolished to make way for the Olympic Park. The village is being implicated in a spreading kickback scandal involving the state-run oil company Petrobras, which triggered protests earlier this month by hundreds of thousands in cities across the country. Quote, it's not just with the athletes' village, but everything that's being built in Rio is being used as an excuse for real estate development says a Sao Paulo lawyer and former member of the Brazilian Olympic Committee. Alberto Murray, 
He singled out the controversial Olympic golf course, which has faced lawsuits over environmental and property laws. 140 luxury apartments surrounding the golf course, with units starting at around $2 million. A public prosecutor is weighing a lawsuit against the Rio mayor for concessions granted to the developer of the golf course. He received city approval to carve, carve the golf course from a nature reserve. Murray compared the athlete's village to one built in Barra de Tijuca for the Pan-American Games in 2007. Some buildings have structural problems, streets are sinking, property values have dropped, and lawsuits have flourished. But the CEO of Pure Isle said this village was, quote, completely different. He said Rio organizers considered cheaper apartments to help lower-income families like London and other cities did in the past. But for these Olympic Games, what we offered the IOC during the bid process was an upscale village. The affordable housing program for London's Athletes Village has faced obstacles with prices out of the reach of some local residents. And an International Olympic Committee inspection team has downplayed worries about the pace of preparation for the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, insisting there will be no venue changes. Gunilla Lindeberg says the organizers have made significant progress in the construction of the venue and arranging the test events to begin next year. She added that they must show more urgency in advancing operational planning and refining budgets. Because it's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's take a look at our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. The top Muslim cleric of the kingdom called this week for the destruction of all churches in the Arabian Peninsula. This came after legislators in Kuwait moved to pass laws banning the construction of religious sites associated with Christianity. Speaking to a delegation in Kuwait, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Abdullah, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia, said the destruction of churches was absolutely necessary and is required by Islamic law. Abdullah, who is considered to be the highest official of religious law in the Sunni Muslim kingdom, also serves as the head of the Supreme Council of Islamic Scholars and of the Standing Committee for Scientific Research and issuing of fatwas. Last month, a Kuwaiti member of parliament announced his plans to submit a draft law calling for the removal of all churches in Kuwait. Remember when we fought to free them? They're free. Uh, he later clarified the law would only apply to new churches. Old ones would be allowed to stay. Just for perspective, I was in um, Barcelona, Spain this week and uh, did a little tourist thing, went to the, uh, the major synagogue in Barcelona. They went to a cathedral too, you know, being fair. And uh, the little tour that they gave of this quite small two-room, very ancient building, which was the uh, major synagogue in Barcelona. Uh, the the tour revealed that uh, it was built in the 13th century when uh, King James issued a proclamation of toleration, which had a l nice little clause in it that the largest synagogue could not be bigger 
than the smallest church in town. Just, you know, too much perspective, ladies and gentlemen. And now, news from outside the bubble. First, a little more about torture from the McClatchy Washington Bureau. A member of the late Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet's secret police who's been accused of murder taught for more than a decade at the Pentagon's premier university, despite repeated complaints by his colleagues about his past. Jaime Garcia Covarrubias, Covarrubias is charged in criminal court in Santiago with being the mastermind in execution-style slayings of seven people in 1973. McClatchy interviewed an accuser who identified him as the person who sexually tortured him. Despite knowing of the allegations, State and Defense Department officials allowed Garcia Covarrubias to retain his visa and continue working at a school affiliated with the National Defense University until just last year. Human rights groups also questioned the school's selection of a second professor, Colombia's former top military commander. Some Latin America experts said the hirings by the William Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies reflect the continuing inclination by the U.S. government to overlook human rights violations in Latin America, especially in countries where it funded efforts to quash leftists. These experts were especially troubled by Garcia Covarrubias' long tenure at one of the nation's most renowned defense institutions. His hiring undermines our moral authority on both human rights and in the war on terror said a former DIA and Army intelligence officer who specializes in Latin America, Chris Simmons. If he's in fact guilty of what he's accused of, he's a terrorist. Then who are we to tell other countries how they should be fighting terrorism? To his supporters, Garcia Covarrubias is a brilliant thinker with a PhD and a purveyor of leadership skills. To his alleged victims, he's a sadistic torturer with a penchant for horsewhips and perversity. A 2008 Chilean military document reviewed by McClatchy identified him as a member of the feared spy agency known by its initials DINA, simply the most sinister agency in Latin America, said Peter Kornbluth, a senior analyst with the National Security Archive. Anyone associated with that agency should never have been allowed into this country, let alone be given this job, he said. Officials with the Pentagon and the State Department refused to comment. Garcia Covarrubias is now back in Chile, ordered by an investigative judge last year to remain in the country while an inquiry continues into his alleged role in the deaths of seven people following the U.S.-backed Pinochet coup in 1973. And since the end of the 2011 NATO-backed war that toppled Muammar Gaddafi, Libya has fragmented with two rival governments and their allied armed groups vying for power. Nascent democracy has been supplanted by a system of repression and fear. This report from The Independent in London. Militias have become the most powerful players in a country devoid of the rule of law, of a national army, or of a police force. Anybody opposing them, be they politician or civilian, is silenced often at gunpoint. In the new Libya, just as in the old, speaking out against those wielding power is enough to see you threatened or killed. There was, many admit, a golden age in the months immediately after the end of Gaddafi's rule, but it was not long before factionalism began to spin out of control. Now that brief optimistic interregnum is spoken of nostalgically as if it were a different era. It was only three years ago that Libyans rushed to the polls to vote for their first democratically elected government. 
It soon became clear that the mentality of the people subjugated to his rule would need much longer to change. With no established social base for democracy, Libya's new rulers resorted to the politics of old, corruption becoming worse even than during Gaddafi's regime, as every politician secured his seat with nepotism and patronage. In four years, the Libyan Investment Authority had six chairmen, barely had time to learn the job, then you were moved out, said the former head of that agency. Libya's oil-rich economy began to founder under a succession of weak governments and with few other job opportunities. Fighting groups formed to oust Gaddafi refused to disband. Instead, each accused the other of secretly being Gaddafi loyalists and gunfights broke out once again as they battled for control of key public facilities. The number of militiamen has burgeoned from the estimated 40,000 fighters during the war against Gaddafi to 160,000 today. In their midst, Islamic extremists have begun to thrive. That is the new Libya. Just for perspective, it's just as bad in Yemen, if not worse, where there's a four-way battle, two groups claiming to govern, one Sunni, one Shiite, the Islamic State, and Al-Qaeda are there fighting against both those groups and each other. And that was a country that just a few months ago President Obama was praising as a success story in the Middle East. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Which leads us inexorably to news of the warm, won't you? Climate change is one of the biggest risks facing the insurance industry. That's according to the governor of the Bank of England. Speaking at the House of Lords, Mark Connie mounted a robust defense of the bank's work on the impact of climate change on the insurance industry. In the face of claims by a former conservative minister that it was green, green claptrap. Bank recently surveyed the insurance industry on its fossil fuel investments as it investigates the risk of an economic crash if actions on climate change render oil and gas assets worthless. The most extensive land-based study of the Amazon to date reveals it is losing its capacity to absorb carbon from the atmosphere from a peak of 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide each year in the 1990s. The net uptake by the forest has dropped by half. Now, for the first time, it's being overtaken by fossil fuel emissions in Latin America. It's a monumental 30-year survey of the South American rainforest. An international team of almost 100 participated, published in the journal Nature. It found that the forest dynamics show a huge rate of trees dying across the Amazon. The lead author says tree mortality rates have increased by more than a third since the mid-1980s. This is affecting the Amazon's capacity to store carbon. With time... More carbon in the atmosphere helps trees grow. That has had unexpected consequences, according to the co-author. With time, the growth stimulation feeds through the system, causing trees to live faster and so die younger. Recent droughts and unusually high temperatures in the Amazon may also be playing a role. The tree mortality increases began well before an intense drought in 2005. It also shows the drought has killed millions of of additional trees. Regardless of the causes, said the researcher, 
The lead researcher of this study shows that predictions of a continuing increase of carbon storage in tropical forests may be too optimistic. Optimism isn't uh, in order for the news from Antarctica. A new paper just out in Nature Geoscience by an international team of scientists flying a number of research flights over the Totten Glacier of East Antarctica, the fastest thinning sector of the world's largest ice sheet, find it is losing ice because warm ocean water is getting underneath it. The same, the same mechanism that's going on in West Antarctica. The idea of warm ocean water eroding the ice in West Antarctica, what we're finding is that it may well be applicable in East Antarctica as well, says a co-author of the study. He's based at Imperial College London. The floating ice shelf of the Totten Glacier covers an area of 90 by 22 miles, losing amount of ice equivalent to 100 times the volume of Sydney Harbour in Australia every year. The glacier holds back a much more vast catchment of ice, according to the Washington Post, that were its vulnerable parts to flow into the ocean could produce a sea level rise of more than 11 feet, comparable to the impact from the loss of the West Antarctica ice sheet, and that's a conservative lower limit, says the lead study author, Jamin Greenbaum, a PhD candidate at the University of Texas. Thanks, Antarctica. Thank you. A new report this week from the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory finds the rate of climate change will increase even more in the 2020s. And Alaska, along with the rest of the Arctic, has been warming even faster with six degrees of winter warming as the loss of snow and ice cover triggers a feedback loop of further warning, according to the EPA. Alaska's rapid warming is very evident. They had to start the Iditarod 300 miles farther north this year to Fairbanks because Anchorage had record low snowfall. They had to reroute the course again when the Chena River, part of the new course, failed to freeze sufficiently. Arctic sea ice hit its annual peak early this year, and climate scientists say the region's below-average ice conditions made this year's maximum extent the lowest on record. Each year, Arctic sea ice grows during the winter and typically reaches its peak in March. A new report from the National Snow and Ice Data Center reveals this year's Arctic ice sea ice likely reached its maximum extent earlier than expected, and covered the lowest maximum extent since satellite record-keeping began in 1979. It is a peak, but a peak low. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
from Milan, Italy, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to read the trades for you. From current trade publication of public broadcasting, NPR making changes to voice of underwriting credits. Oh, I'll read it for you. NPR is moving announcer Sabrina Farhai, I actually have moved her, out of her primary role reading its sponsorship credits, according to an email to member stations. In a memo obtained by Current, NPR's vice president of programming wrote, You may have noticed a new voice reading some NPR sponsorship credits. She's Jessica Hansen, who's joined us to assist in this work. You'll start to hear her voice more frequently by the end of February. She'll be the primary voice heard in our on-air sponsorship credit reads. We will be evaluating this arrangement, doing some research over the coming weeks. That's a good use of money. Research on voice of funding credits, don't you think? NPR's spokeswoman Isabel Lara confirmed the addition of Hansen. An email to the former voice, Farhai's email address, prompted an auto-reply saying she was out of the office. She became the voice of NPR's sponsorship messages in October 2013. At the time, the vice president, Mr. Nuzum, said, Out of hundreds of voices, Sabrina's immediately stood out for its warmth and conversational approach. Unquote. But she has been criticized for having vocal fry, defined by a Los Angeles-based voice doctor as the low vibratory sound that comes in some people's speech, especially at the end of sentences that is particularly common among women. Founding Morning Edition editor William Drummond said on a current.org podcast, or sorry, podcast, that Farhai's voice is, quote, different in a pejorative sense, unquote. Yeah, a lot of storm and drong about the voices at NPR for f- reading funding credits erupting when I read the trades for you, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And coincidentally, a similar story is occurring at another public radio network. From CPR, Continental Public Radio, this is Up To Here. Up to here, CPR's weekly look at the day's news. I'm Milton Getzler. For almost 10 years, all of CPR's broadcasts, from all in all to book bag, from as a matter of fact to up to here, have ended with credits identifying those persons and organizations whose generosity makes these programs necessary. Now, CPR is looking for a new voice to read those credit announcements, and the auditions have just begun. CPR's Ira Zipkin wandered down the hall to be a hopefully unsquashed fly on the wall. Uh, we're rolling any time. <coughs> uh, can you cue me, please? Any time. On your own cue. I'm reading. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Support for CPR comes from the Shetlinger Foundation, making dreams come true and turning truth into dreams. 
That's fine. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was Shirtlinger, wasn't it? I don't know. I'm reading. In Studio 3C of CPR's new headquarters building, a very special set of auditions is taking place. Call it the search for the voice of a network. Or I'll call it that, and you just keep listening. What we're looking for is both evanescent and palpable. CPR senior executive producer Ada Schlorman. A voice that evokes the CPR mission and at the same time is a pain to the enduring miracle of wealth. Rolling. Support comes from the Tire Foundation. Without tires, you're going nowhere fast. A little down, but excellent. Thank you. My name's Mike Gray. I worked here about uh, 25 years ago when CPR was just starting to gain some fundraising traction. I'd love to work on my head a little bit, and uh, now I think I'd really love to get back into the... Uh, the whole public radio dimension. Recruitment notices have flooded the internet, and applicants have come here to Studio 3C from as far away as two metro stops down. And what's remarkable, as always at CPR, is the diversity. Rolling. Life on CPR is made possible by the Life Insurance Institute. Life is for a living. Excellent, and tell us your name once again. I'm Tom Brokaw, Jr. Wonderful, thank you. It's so difficult to put your finger on anything, let alone what we're looking for here. It's some intangible sense of what it means to be proud of not needing the money and at the same time grateful for actually getting it. CPR's goal is to have all the funding credits across all its programs spoken in one consistent voice. But some CPR hosts weren't thrilled with that decision. Well, of course I'd gotten used to doing the credits on my programs, including this one. All in all host Milton Getzler. So it was hard for me uh, for the first few weeks not to take this move personally, but then I realized it adds to my credibility not to have to mention all those foundations and corporations. And besides, it means I get out of the studio 20 seconds earlier every day, so... I think it's going to work out. And rolling. Support for CPR comes from pork. So much more than pig meat. That's wonderful. Thank you, honey. Ada Schlorman hopes to have the process narrowed down to 20 semifinalists sometime during the third fiscal quarter of next year. I'm Ira Zipkin, down the hall in Studio 3C. Can I stop rolling now? And for now, you're up to here. Maybe for the last time, let me say we had help today from the Sandler Foundation. Making a difference by being different. Join us next time for another deep dive into the weeds on Up to Here. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. We've got the ultra-modern knack of getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a little 
Ladies and gentlemen, California is currently the only state that requires chemical testing of fracking wastewater and public disclosure of the findings. The Environmental Working Group has completed an analysis of the data released by the state during the first year of those requirements. What did it find? High levels of the carcinogen benzene in California's fracking wastewater. Drilling sites at the fracking hub in Kerbin County were shut down after they were found to have illegally dumped wastewater into drinking supplies. The study revealed the presence of hundreds of chemicals, including many linked to cancer, nervous system damage, and reproductive disorders. Among them, found in up to 50% of the samples, were chromium-6, lead, and arsenic, all linked to cancer and or reproductive damage. Why, you might as well be playing with old toys as drinking water. The samples also contained thousands of times more radioactive radium, radium, than the goal set by the state, along with high levels of nitrate and chloride ions. And another analysis by the Center for Biological Diversity found that 98% of the fracking wastewater samples tested exceeded federal and state water levels for benzene. We've long suspected California's fracking wastewater was full of harmful chemicals. The first publicly available data not only confirms our suspicions, but reveals just how toxic this wastewater is, said senior scientist for the Environmental Working Group. Nearly two months after a 4.4 magnitude earthquake shook the area around Fox Creek, Alberta, Canada, some residents are still shaken. Seismic activity in the area has been on the rise lately. Residents say there are a few answers to why the earth is shaking. Each year, Alberta averages 30 earthquakes. Since September of 2013, there have been 200 in this area of Alberta alone. The 4.4 magnitude quake in January of this year is the largest ever connected to fracking. Experts believe the tremors are caused by fracking in Alberta. Many worry that as production increases, the tremors will become more frequent and more intense, says a seismologist at the University of Western Ontario. That's the real concern. Meanwhile, what's in that fracking fluid in the first place? A federal appeal court has upheld the dismissal of a lawsuit filed by a Scranton, Pennsylvania physician. He challenged a law that precluded him from releasing information he obtained regarding what those chemicals are. Dr. Alfonso Rodriguez challenged the law which allows medical professionals to learn the ingredients in fracking fluid if the information is used to treat patients but requires them to sign a confidentiality agreement. Dr. Rodriguez is a kidney specialist who's questioned the health impact of the fracking process. He filed a federal lawsuit three years ago that alleged the medical gag rule interfered with his ability to treat patients, some of whom worked in the natural, natural gas industry and had been exposed to fracking chemicals. The lawsuit argued Dr. Rodriguez, now it's spelled with a G, was spelled with a Q in the last paragraph, had an ethical obligation to share information regarding fracking, fracking fluid ingredients with his patients, other medical professionals, and the general public to, quote, advance scientific knowledge. The judge in the case in the first instance, Dr. Uh, Judge Richard Caputo dismissed the complaint. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the judge's ruling, saying Dr. Rodriguez lacked legal standing to bring the lawsuit because he couldn't prove he was damaged by the law. What the frack? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Let's check in on the most transparent administration in history. So transparent, you can see right through it. We're seeing through you. The Obama administration announced 
this week it will get rid of regulations that subjected large portions of White House correspondence to public records requests. This decision was derided by transparency advocates, Riley noting it was issued during the week that celebrates open access to government. The notice exempting the White House's Office of Administration from requirements of the Freedom of Information Act was contained in the Federal Register, reversing a three-decade-old policy, and it was during Sunshine Week, the annual celebration of the Freedom of Information Act law. The White House has reversed a decades-long practice of opening the files of the Office of Administration to the public. Apparently, they've abandoned even the appearance of transparency, says the Executive Director for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And... The Obama administration set a record for censoring government files or outright denying access to them last year under the Freedom of Information Act, according to a new analysis of federal data by the Associated Press. The government took longer to turn over files when it provided any, said more often that it couldn't find documents, and refused a record number of times to turn over files quickly that might be newsworthy. It acknowledged in nearly one in three cases that its initial decisions to withhold or censor records were improper under the law, but they only did that when challenged. And the background, sorry, the backlog of unanswered requests at year's end grew by 55% to more than 200,000. The administration also cut by 375, or by 9%, the number of full-time employees across government paid to look for records. The most transparent administration in history, ladies and gentlemen. You can see right through it. And now, so sorry. Dateline Solvang, California, a week after making remarks regarding Indian casinos taking over the Danishness of Solvang, the Danish ambassador to the United States, Peter Taxo Jensen, has apologized to the city and to local tribal members. I realize and regret that my remarks may have been misunderstood by some or may have been misconceived as more than an attempted humorous reference to the legend of Holger Danske. Please accept my sincere apology for any inconvenience my remarks may have caused, he wrote to the Solvang mayor. The ambassador's comments came uh, earlier this month during the ribbon cutting at the Copenhagen House, a Danish design center in the town's village center. When It's a Danish-themed village in Central California, when developers unveiled the building centerpiece, a hand-carved statue of the mythological sleeping soldier Holger Danske, fabled to wake if Danish culture is threatened, the ambassador said he was sure he will wake up someday if some Indian casino or some other stuff tries to take over the Danishness of Solvang. He will guard that. City council person said, I think other things may have been going on in his life. I don't know. He was trying to make a joke, but maybe he's not a very good comedian. Humor by amateurs. Ladies and gentlemen, an Orange County, Florida assistant principal apologized this week for sending a text message with the phrase, quote, vaginas are on fire, unquote, and said he was working to regain the trust of the school community. Scott Peters declined to say what the message meant, but said, quote, it wasn't directed at any teacher, unquote. He was reprimanded after sending the principal of the school, Daniel Merchant, messages last year. They read, quote, take your time getting here. Vaginas are on fire, unquote. The principal, Daniel Merchant, was reprimanded after he acknowledged occasionally using inappropriate language to refer to female staff and failing to report the inappropriate text to a supervisor. The uh, Peters, the assistant principal who wrote the offending text, started his career 
as a PE teacher. Go figure. Probably the most consequential apology of the week came from a former prosecutor in Caddo Parish, Louisiana. He helped wrongly convict Angola death row inmate Glenn Ford nearly three decades ago. Now he says in a regret-filled letter that he helped contribute to the miscarriage of justice. Quote, I was arrogant, judgmental, narcissistic, and very full of myself. Well, he could be in show business. Uh, that's the uh, words of, those are the words of A.M. Stroud III in the lengthy letter originally sent to the Shreveport Times. Quote, again, I was not as interested in justice as I was into winning. Unquote. He prosecuted Ford for the 1983 murder of a jewelry and watch repair shop owner. Quote, my fault was that I was too passive. I did not consider the rumors about the involvement of parties other than Mr. Ford to be credible. Had I been more inquisitive, perhaps the evidence would have come to light years ago. Unquote. An all-white jury found Ford guilty. He is African-American and maintaining his innocence. He was sentenced to death two months after the guilty sentence was passed in December 1984. Stroud says prosecutors gave, quote, little thought about potential discrimination, unquote, when they emptied the potential juror pool of African-Americans prior to the trial and never, quote, questioned the fairness, unquote, of Ford's attorney having little criminal experience. I uh, also participated in placing before the jury dubious testimony from my forensic pathologist that the shooter had to be left-handed even though there was no eyewitness to the murder, Stroud writes. All too late, I learned that testimony was pure junk science at its evil worst. Unquote. It would not be until March of last year before the state, acting on credible evidence of Ford's innocence, filed a motion to vacate his conviction. Ford now lives in New Orleans. He's filed lawsuits claiming he was wrongfully imprisoned. Stroud ends his letter with apologies to Ford, jury members, the court, and the family of the victim. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. That concludes this week's edition of Le Show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR Worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available as a free podcast. It's they're back at WWNO.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn.com. And it would be just like not drinking that lead and arsenic or having it in your toys if you'd agree to, to be with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau, to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. 
the email address for this program and the playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts. Think of it. Just do that. Just think of it. All available at harryshare.com. Twitter at the Harry Shearer. I'm there all week. Try the veal. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long. Arrivederci from Milan. <laughs>